0: Well good morning. It's a joy to be with you all this morning. My name is Chris Colquitt. I'm the senior pastor here and it's so nice to welcome you to Trinity. If you are new here, I'd love to meet you after the service. I'll be in the back for a minute and then I'm going to go hang out with the students for lunch. Um, but welcome. We're so glad that you have joined us this morning. We are in sermon number four of five in Genesis 1 through 2. That may seem like a lot of sermons for two chapters of scripture. To me it seems not a lot and especially the text we're going to read today we could preach five sermons on and so i'm going to ask your forgiveness in advance for not preaching exactly the sermon you'd like me to preach on this text Uh, i'm going to take a path that i think will be good for us Um, it's also an accident that we are going to talk about the creation of woman uh, while a 100 women are away i did not mean for that to happen but it has happened there's enough of y'all here to keep me honest so um, let's read from the Holy Scriptures, and then we will pray, and then we'll consider what God has for us here. We're going to read from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, which hopefully you're becoming familiar. And then we're going to read the end of chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. On the earth and then jumping down to chapter 2 verse 18 then the Lord God said it is not good that the man should be alone I will make him a helper fit for him now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them and whatever the man called every living creature that was its name Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Great God in heaven, we rejoice at the privilege to gather as your people called by your name invited here by the good news of the gospel lord we do answer back to you in praise and thanksgiving and now we pray that you would help us lord we couldn't know you if you hadn't revealed yourself to us we rejoice that you have not only in all of creation but savingly in your holy scriptures we pray now that the spirit who breathed these very words out would be with us, be with me, be with all of us as we hear your word proclaimed that we might see and treasure Christ our Savior here at the very beginning of creation. Lord, we come here from all over the place, from all sorts of distractions and distresses. Lord, we pray that you would quiet our hearts. Lord, I pray for those here who do not yet know you, that they would see and treasure Christ, that their eyes would be opened by the power of your spirit, and that they would release all desire and hope of finding a way to righteousness apart from you, that they would put their faith in Jesus Christ. This I pray in his precious name. Amen. We've been looking at creation, and we've seen that God is the good creator. Genesis chapter 1 is this wonderful picture of God powerfully and mightily, but also easily creating beautiful and good things. And he has this refrain pronouncing again and again that he saw that it was good. God is the master architect and builder. Good, good, good. And then at the end, the sixth day, he says, and it was very good. He read that last week. What we don't get most of the time in Genesis 1 and 2 is a picture into why God made things the way he did. Why did God make the colors of the rainbow the colors of the rainbow? That's a great question that maybe someday he'll reveal to us in the new heavens and the new earth, but we don't get to see that. Why is snow white? We don't know. Why do we have two arms instead of three? We don't know, but we do know one thing about the way God made us. God zooms in here and explains to us why he made men and women. The story of creation in Genesis chapter 1, there is this refrain of good, 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 very good. But in Genesis 2, as we zoom in to the creation of man and woman, we hear in verse 18 something that is surprising. There's something that's not good. It's not good for man to be alone. The last act of creation, God's final flourish, before he pronounces it all very good, is to make woman and to create marriage. And there's beauty in that, that we could go off on for hours. There's power in romance and love that I think is grounded here in Genesis chapter 1. There's beauty in the feminine. It's God's final act. And yet, there's also this riddle as we think about the meaning of this text, which is that in the New Testament, Jesus says there's not going to be marriage in heaven. Singleness is held up as this beautiful vocation. So what do we do with that? I'm not going to solve that problem exactly today. I'll hint at it. What I do want us to see is that in the creation of woman and in this phrase that it's not good for man to be alone, God is laying the groundwork for redemption, that God here in Genesis chapter 2 is preparing us for our salvation in Jesus Christ. That's my goal this morning as we look at this text. And to do that, I want to think about this phrase, it's not good for man to be alone, and consider it in three registers and three planes. The first is the most obvious, which is the need for Eve. The second, we will see, is the need for Christ. And the third, is the need for one another. So those are our points this morning, if you're taking notes. The need for Eve, the need for Christ, and the need for one another. So first, the need for Eve. This is the one that's most apparent in our text. Why isn't it good for Adam to be alone? What do you think? Is he lonely? Well, maybe, but that's, I do not think, the answer to the question. And to see that, we need to remember what we talked about last week. And we're going to talk about this again next week. And we'll talk about it again some more after that. When God creates us, when God creates humans, he commissions them, he commissions us to a task. He gives us work to do. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, he says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Verse 28. And as we think about God's relation to us, we want to be careful not to have a simplistic view of the garden and sin. There's a version that's, that's fine but not great that says something like this. God made us, he put us in paradise, he gave us rules, and he said you can hang out here in paradise with me as long as you don't break the rules. We broke the rules, we had to get kicked out. Jesus came and paid our penalty and invited us back into paradise and now we get to hang out with God again. Now that's, that's okay, okay, but it's not, it's not the best because the better story and the story that we see in Genesis chapter 1 played out through Revelation is that God created a garden in the middle of a wilderness and he put man and woman there and he said, you have a job. Your job is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and take this garden and extend it to the corners of the world so that my whole world will be filled with worshipers who are imaging me in righteousness. That was the task. That's Genesis 1.28. And the sad story of the fall, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks, is that we failed at that task. And so Christ comes in and not only does he pay our penalty, but he actually performs the righteous work that Adam was supposed to do so that we could merit the blessing that we were promised, that we could eat, have the right to eat from the tree of life, which we'll look at next week. Okay, that framework's important because as we go back to Adam here in Genesis chapter 2 and God looks at him and says it's not good for man to be alone we need to realize that Adam's got a job to do and this verdict of not good is related to that job. And it's, it's very simple. It may sound trite. Why is it not good for man to be alone? Well, he brings forward all the animals. There's not a helper fit for him and he makes Eve and Eve works. Why? Well, because in Genesis 1, chapter 28, God told Adam to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and you can't do that without Eve. Okay. God made Eve and Adam so that they could procreate. They could become one flesh and have babies. To do the job, they had to have babies and fill the earth. That's it. That's the most simple reason that God says it's not good for man to be alone. All right. Now you say, okay, that's very problematic because that instrumentalizes women into just baby makers right? Is that what the Bible is saying here? And the answer is no, that's not what the Bible is saying here. Eve and Adam both are image bearers of God. Their dignity is not from their maleness or femaleness. Their dignity is from their image bearing of God. And yet their difference, the thing that makes them distinct, is tied to this this commission to be fruitful and multiply. The thing that made them male and female was oriented toward their vocation in the garden, we were made male and female because we had a job to do. Y'all tracking? That's important for understanding marriage, for understanding our maleness and femaleness. Simply put, God created two types of humans, each bearing the image of God, and He gave us a task. But it was a task that we could only complete together, as one, joined as one flesh. And that's what He summarizes in verse 24 therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh to be faithful to god's call they could not be solo actors to fulfill the commission they had to do it together they had to become one body united by this miracle of marriage obedience to god's commission would come from a one flesh union of the two you'll see that so for, for Adam to do his job, for the blessing to be found, for the earth to be filled, they had to do it together in this union. Union was the key. God made men and women differently on purpose, and he called them to a task that they could only complete together. Germain Grize, who's a Catholic theologian, and a lot of times the Catholics guys are better on this than the Protestants, um, here's what they say. Though a male and a female are complete individuals, With respect to other functions, for example, nutrition, sensation, and locomotion, you can do all those things by yourself. With respect to reproduction, they are only potential parts of a mated pair, which is the complete organism capable of reproducing. We are designed in our very biology to not be complete with respect to this thing that we're called to do without another. God did that on purpose, and he commissioned us to a task that we had to do in union with one another. All right. What do we do with that that's that's genesis 1 and 2 where do we go from there we could go lots of different ways and here's where i'm going to take one route but i'll name some other ones we could we'd could have a sermon on marriage that would be important and good we'll do that sometime talking about jesus uses this one flesh idea to forbid divorce paul uses it to enjoin love as we'll see in a second we could also use some contemporary social and ethical applications about the difference between men and women, about the intrinsic design that God used to make us as men and women. That's important. That's not what we're going to do this morning. What I want to do is to see how, in this design of God, for us to complete his commission in union, he's laying the groundwork for Jesus. And we find that in the deep meaning of marriage. In the Old Testament... And in the New Testament, again and again, God uses marriage as a metaphor for His relationship to the people of Israel. God says, "I am the husband, and you are my bride." And in the Old Testament, he, that's usually the faithless bride, the bride who is unfaithful to her husband, and the husband is calling her back. But in the New Testament, We see at the end of time in revelation chapter 19 that the final picture is of a marriage supper where the church as christ's bride is clothed and revealed in splendor and united to him that's a clue and that's where i want to go next so we see the need for eve now i want us to think about the need for christ that's revealed in this original design and to do that i want to go to ephesians chapter 5. if i had it over again i would have printed this in your bulletin. So if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to open it. If you have it on your phone, I'll give you permission to get your phone out and look at Ephesians 5 for a second. Ephesians 5, verses 25 to 33. Pick this up. Now, the marriage sermon that's not being preached, we're not going to preach. So let's let's hear this, and I want to draw one thing out for us. This is Paul speaking here to husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's Christ's vocation. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So Paul, in considering marriage, is stuck between two sermons, too. He says, love your wives, and he means it, and he uses Christ as an example, and we will do that sometime. But the thing that blows his mind is the mystery that he describes in verse 32 quoting genesis chapter 2 verse 24 and he says this this mystery is profound but that verse refers to christ and the church that when moses wrote these words concerning god's original creation that a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall be one flesh that's about the relationship between Jesus and the church. All right. Paul says that's a mystery, but it's true. He does something similar in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He's teaching against sexual immorality, but listen to this. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. There's a good sermon here on sexual immorality that we're not going to preach. But listen, Paul's saying something remarkable. That the union between a man and a woman is not just like the union between Christ and the church, but it's somehow there's a transitive property there, that there's a spiritual union created between husband and wife, and there's a spiritual union created between us and Jesus Christ and the gospel. Now, the union of Christ is another topic we don't have time to talk about fully, but I do want us to notice this, this particular connection to Genesis chapter 1, okay? I'm, this, is, this sermon's about to get narrow and focused, I promise. But it's so good. There's all these... Anyway. The one flesh union in the garden, right, was designed to complete the covenantal task of God and earn the blessing that would come from it. God says, be fruitful and multiply. It's not good to be alone. I'm going to unite you to Eve, Adam, so that you can complete the covenantal task before you. The first Adam needed Eve to complete that task, to be faithful to God and to earn the blessing of eternal rest. Now, y'all see that? They failed. And now you and I, we are all sons and daughters of Eve in a world that we cannot earn the blessing that God has set before us. We cannot complete faithfully the task that he has set before us. And we are once more in need of a helper. Y'all see this? The sons of Eve, the daughters of Eve, need a second Adam. It is not good for us to be alone before God. This is the gospel, guys. God sends Christ Jesus, who is the second Adam, called such in the scriptures so that we might be united to him so that we might fulfill faithfully the covenant requirements of the law but unlike adam and eve who we're going to share in that co-equally both working right our partner jesus christ the second adam to whom we are joined spiritually he does it all the path to covenant blessedness the path to eternal rest is through faithfulness and righteousness and it's through union that was true in the garden and it's true now but rather than being united to humans Adam and Eve to one another we are united to Jesus Christ himself and rather than sharing in that labor Jesus Christ does it all himself and we get the blessing why because we're united to him as one as Christ performs faithfully the law, we're united to him. We get the credit. The two become one and serve God in union. This idea of union and covenant faithfulness, and these are big ideas, but I hope they're simple ideas too. In in laying that out for Adam and Eve in the garden, right? I don't. I don't know computer code. I'm not a software engineer. I went to college before they made us take that. Okay, um, but God, in the code of creation, is writing in, right, the function. Help me out, someone. That, that's eventually going to be the way that Jesus saves us. The way that Adam and Eve are supposed to relate in relation to fulfilling righteously the demands of the law, together, be fruitful and multiply. Now. God takes that source code and says, I'm bringing Jesus in as a second Adam and he's going to do it for you. You see that? And so the creation of woman, the creation of marriage in the beginning is indeed the final flourish of creation, but it's even more beautiful than romance and love. Because it's the framework, this idea of union is the connection point with which eventually Christ will come and redeem us from our sins. And give us his righteousness so that we might be saved. And God looks at that and says, this is very good. Buckle up for what's about to come. I'm going to send my Redeemer to save these people. This is the gospel, brothers and sisters. It's not good for you to be alone before God. You need to be united to a covenant partner. You need the second Adam You need Christ Jesus, and if you have him, and friends, you just receive him by faith. You just give up on doing it yourself and say, I need you, Jesus. If you have him, his righteousness is yours. His performance is yours. His salvation is yours. It's not good for you to be alone before God. Christ has come. He offers himself to you. Be joined to him that'd be a great place to stop. Um, I want to do something else, though, but pause there. It's the beauty of the gospel. Third point, though, I want to think about is this, the need for one another, because our righteousness and our blessing is complete in Jesus Christ. The work is done by him, but Jesus' work is continuing today still it continued after his resurrection, and his ascension, and it continues this very day. And united to him, he invites us to participate in that work. You'll remember, hopefully, some of you, some of you won't because you'll never heard this before. and this is pretty awesome. In Matthew chapter 28, at the end of Jesus's earthly life, he takes the disciples this is after he's risen. He brings the disciples to them and he says this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. Now that's known as the Great Commission within the history of the Church. It's an important document. It's an important statement that drives us into evangelism. But what I want us to also see is it's a restatement of Genesis chapter one. Verse 28, it's a restatement of this command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth because Jesus takes that initial command and then after all that he has done, he reissues it and says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. How? By going to all the nations and making disciples in my name, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The original goal was to create a world full of the image bearers of God, worshiping him in every corner of of this planet and Jesus reissues that command to us in the Great Commission he commissions his disciples to do the same we as the church as the bride of Christ united to him the good and faithful second Adam are to bring disciples to life across the world new birth through our union with Jesus and here then is the final sense in which it's not good for man to be alone, because, brothers and sisters, our union with Christ most importantly unites us to him, but quite importantly also unites us to one another in faith. The New Testament again and again describes us, the body of Christ, those who call on his name as the body of Christ. I just said that, I didn't mean to. First Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, those are the places to go look. And I want to look at Ephesians 12, 5 or sorry, not Ephesians. There's no Ephesians 12. Romans 12, 5, where G, where Paul says, So, though we though many, we are one body in Christ, and members individually one of another. We are members one of another. So that the the gospel unites us to Jesus and then it unites us to one another. That's the for those of you who are here this summer, or no, but maybe it was this spring. That's the Gushers thing, okay? Um the callback. If you weren't here, that's cool. You can ask me about it later. But that union, like the union of Adam and Eve in the garden, has a function, okay? It's not just for us to hang out and not be lonely. It's for us to do something. And that do something is the work that Christ has called us to. And if we read the rest of Romans 12, we, we read this, Romans 12, 3 through 6. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measures of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And he goes on to describe some of those gifts god in joining us together as his body gives us gifts differently you have gifts that someone else doesn't have that person has gifts that you don't have and the design is that we would be joined together as one and that together exercising our gifts in union with one another we would advance the mission of god in this world It's a beautiful thing and it's the picture of this church and i want to i want to close though by applying that to some places in our heart okay so use your gifts in the church please we need your gifts now the reality of our union with one another with different gifts and different needs which is how god designed you on purpose just like Men and women were designed differently on purpose. You and I in the body of Christ are given gifts differently on purpose so that we might be joined together under fruitful labor. God did that on purpose. He did it with intention. There's uh, in admissions, someone probably here in this room is in the admissions office at UVA, and I'd love to get to know you so I can get people into the school. Um, (laughs) Many of you all got into the school. I was I was working before this at Northwestern uh, or with students at Northwestern. I didn't work for Northwestern. Um, and there was an interesting discussion within college admissions uh, about whether or not you are looking for a well-rounded student or a well-rounded class. And one of the things that is going on in the world of admissions discussions is that they're beginning to see that you really want a well-rounded class, not a bunch of well-rounded students. I was told when I was in high school you need to be well-rounded, you do everything well. But what what at least elite college admissions are going for now is no, we want people who are really good at this thing and we want someone else who's really good at this thing and we're going to put them all together and we're going to have a class that's really interesting and full of fun people. You don't want well-rounded people anymore. And whether or not that's good for college admissions, what I want to suggest to you today is that God does not want you and has not designed you to be a well-rounded person. God has designed you to be part of a well-rounded body of Christ. He has given you gifts, and he has given you needs. He did that on purpose, and that's really significant to understanding who you are and how you relate to the people in this room and this world. And I want to just close with three things that it does for us. The first thing is that humbles us. You do not have every gift. I do not have every gift. Omnicompetence is a fool's errand, And it's folly to think that you have it. And there are a lot of people in this room, including the guy talking, who is tempted quite often to think that I am omnicompetent, that I can do it all. If you think that about yourself, you're wrong. God did not make you that way, and he didn't do it on purpose. And the foolishness of imagining that you can do all things and be all things is ultimately going to turn for you into a burden that you cannot bear because you're going to run up against things you can't do and you're going to think you were always supposed to be able to do those things. It humbles us to know that God made us different on purpose and put us together. The second thing, though, it does is it encourages us. You do not need to be omnicompetent to have the love and the blessing of the Father. The God who loves you who calls you, who made you and who designed you with gifts and needs did that all on purpose. And he gave you needs. He gave you deficits on purpose. He made you not to have certain gifts so that you would need one another and that together you could go and follow Jesus. When we get insecure, anyone here ever been insecure? When we get insecure, our temptation with ourselves and with our friends to be like, no, you're great at that. You're awesome at that. No, you, you, that, and, and that's fine. That's, that's encouraging, I guess. But the truth is a lot of times the answer to our insecurity needs to be, yeah, you're not good at that. And that's okay. God didn't make you to be good at that. You don't need to worry about that. This is a silly example, but it's true, right? Men in this room, you do not need to be insecure that you cannot make babies inside your body. God did not make you to do that, right? And God didn't make you to be omnicompetent in any other way. It's okay. It's okay. You can't do everything. It it encourages us in our insecurity. And then finally, it challenges us. And this is where I want to close this. You do have gifts. God has united us together, and he has blessed you with certain things that you are good at. And Paul here in Romans 12 says that you are to have a sober understanding of those gifts, which means that you need to be able to say, if I asked you, what are you good at? You would say, okay, here's what I'm good at. And that's not prideful. That's not boasting, that's actually just a sober understanding of how God has designed you. In God's economy, your gifts don't make you better than your brother and your sister. Your gifts create an obligation to your brother and sister. As you understand that you are good at something and that God has blessed you with that gift, you understand that you are called to something. Y'all see that? Don't get too excited about omnicompetence or getting close to it because that just means you have a lot of burden to go share and care for in the world. God has made you to love your neighbor and to advance his mission of the gospel advance in this world. Jesus Christ has done the work for your blessing and he's given you these gifts. Your gifts, you don't have them for the sake of your self esteem, you have them for the sake of following Jesus. In his self-dying way be secure in your weakness be humble in your giftedness and go out and lay down your life for those with whom you are joined together it's not good for you to be alone god didn't make you to be alone in the garden he laid the foundation for you to be joined to jesus and now he calls you he calls me to be joined together in union this is really good news It's more stuff than should have been in one sermon, and I'm sorry about that, but rejoice. Christ is marvelous, and in this very beginning of creation, before he pronounces his very good, he lays the groundwork for all of the joys that you are invited to in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, do rejoice that you are good and that you have made us, that you have designed us for the very beginning, that we might be united to Jesus Christ. As we approach Genesis chapter 3 in the fall, we know that even here in Genesis 2, you knew what was to come. And you were laying the foundation through which you would unite us to yourself through your Son, Jesus Christ. God, I do pray that you would help us to rest in that reality. Help us to rest from our doing, our working, our striving, the burdens that we feel and to see Jesus Christ, the one who has fulfilled it all. And then let us follow him, holding loosely but joyfully to the gifts you have given us and to the needs that we have, joining with one another in Christ to follow Jesus together. God bless us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.